Let's open our Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. We're going to be looking this morning at this church of Revelation. It's called the Church of Laodicea. First, let's read verses 14 through the end of the chapter, through verse 22. Again, it's the Church of Laodicea. And let's read it together. And the angel, and to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, And do you not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor, blind and naked? I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich, and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the churches. And so as we look at this church of Laodicea, It's a letter where there are no commendations whatsoever. There's nothing good that the Lord has to say about this church. In fact, there's only rebuke. And if you remember last week, we looked at the Church of Philadelphia, and that was in very stark contrast to the church we're looking at this morning. Because the Church of Philadelphia was a church that was vibrant, it was alive, it was doing all the right things. And the Lord commended them and actually had nothing to rebuke them of. But this church is very different in every way. This one had nothing, no no commendations whatsoever, but only rebuke, only rebuke. And you recall when we first started looking at the churches of Revelation that I said that these churches were physical churches in the first century that were located in Asia Minor, in the western uh, side of it, and, and that is true. However, have you ever asked yourself the question, why is it, perhaps, that the Lord chose these seven churches out of all of the churches in the area? We know that 35 years prior to when this was written, because remember, the book of Revelation was written around 95, 96 A.D., and Paul the Apostle had written to, and we have those letters in our Bibles, the Thessalonians, the Romans, the uh, Colossians, the Galatians, and yet none of those churches are listed here by the Lord. And I've wondered why he chose these seven churches specifically. And I'm just going to give you my opinion, a, a possibility, but I think it is very possible that as the Lord chose these churches, that he was also, he did that for a reason. Number one, he knew that Everyone in every church would exemplify some of these characteristics, good and bad. In every church, in every fellowship that's ever existed, even within our own fellowship, there are those who are on fire and there are those who are barely on life support. And so those things are true in every church. So he gives us that, but he also gives us an outline of church history. We believe that because there are so many, and I don't believe these are coincidences, 
there are those who have taken it in hand to examine church history thus far, and these churches, in the order that they have been given by the Lord, seem to very clearly lay out different periods in the church, and it's very interesting. And and it ought not to surprise us if that is the case, because we know that God lies outside of time. He's not confined by time like we are. So he can see all of history as if it has already been completed. And that's why he can speak to us about things coming in the future with absolute 100% certainty, because he knows. He's already seen it. He's already, and that's why he can write it in advance. That's what the book of Revelation is all about. Most of it is prophecy yet to be fulfilled, things that have yet to take place. And so it wouldn't surprise me if the Lord did that. And so as we look at this church, notice this one is at the very end, at the very end. And many believe that this church is the church in all of its, um, it, the things that aren't so healthy about it, is a representation of the church even right now before the Lord returns for His church. We don't know when that time is. We can't set dates. It would be foolish to do such thing, to do such a thing. But we know and believe by looking at this letter and we look at the signs all around us and the things that are happening on, on a global scale, we see this kind of thing happening. And even within our own hearts at times, if we're not careful, we can see this Laodicean spirit, if you will, just kind of come over people. And it's something that we don't have to succumb to. We, we, we must resist it because all around us, everything in our culture is designed by the powers that be to dull that sense and, and to get you to think about anything but Jesus Christ. All of our education, all of our, most of our education, most of our television, most of our entertainment is anything but biblical and it's anything but trying to encourage you to get closer to the Lord. In fact, it's actually doing the opposite. And the more we spend time in that world, if you will, the more we're going to have a we're going to have a lesser of an appetite of the things of God and certainly the word of God. So how important is it for us to be in the word of God? It's very important. It's very important. And I would encourage you as we look at this church, it's going to be difficult, okay? But I want you to really examine yourself and allow the Lord to examine you. Take whatever the Lord gives to you. Some of you are going to be like, this really doesn't apply to me, and that's okay. Some of us, it's going to apply. One of these things is going to hit us right in the heart because I know as I was preparing for it, I was just like, Lord, help. <laughs> you know, these are difficult, difficult things. And so we believe we live in that age, in this Laodicean age. But that doesn't mean that there aren't Philadelphians among us. And hopefully I'm one of those Philadelphians, uh, and I hope that you are too, uh, a person who exemplifies that church of Philadelphia where the Lord had no rebuke but only commendation. And so that, that's really the thing that we desire more than anything, isn't it? Isn't it really to, to love the Lord and to love His Word, to love His people, to have our hearts on fire again for the things of God and, and to encourage people? Not, not in some kind of uh, weird bravado, not in some kind of legalistic fashion. You, you see that, don't you? And unfortunately, it turns so many people off. When people get zealous for the Lord, sometimes they cross the line and they get into their own flesh and they start you know, standing out on corners yelling at people, shaking the Bible. And, and telling them, calling them names even. And there are some churches in Texas that even have done that. And it's really an embarrassment to the church when people do that. Because that's not the Lord. That's not His heart, I can tell you. And so, let's look at this. We've already read verses 14 through 22. Let's begin at verse 14 again. And we'll kind of tear this apart as we go. It says, And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness 
the beginning of the creation of God. And so when we look at this, we first see Laodiceans. This Laodiceans are church people in this church of Laodicea. That's the town. So Laodiceans are the name of the people. And the, the, the definition of a Laodicean uh, is the people ruling or judgment of the people. In other words, the, the, the church is kind of in control rather than the Lord being in control of the church. And it's a sad thing when there is no longer any church leadership and they've given up being governed by God and rather they get things done by voting and having some kind of democracy within the church. And that's really not the way the Lord works either. The Lord has worked through uh, men and, and spoken to men and has had them lead. And, and that's the way we believe things that the, that the Lord does things. And, um, and instead of being led by the Lord, the church, the, the, this church, they decide what it wants. They decide what they want and they develop a committee and then they make it happen. They just make it happen whether the Lord is in it or not. And this is very dangerous. We need to be very careful. And this is one of the things that the Laodicean age, one of the tenets of the Laodicean age is people ruling over and just a group of people. It's more like, it becomes more like a democracy rather than a church. And, um, and everybody has a say and everybody has an equal vote. And, you know, it, that all sounds nice and everything, but uh, when that tends to happen, there's, there's always trouble. There is always trouble. But notice what Jesus goes on and he says, These, th- these things says the Amen. And the Amen, we, we use that word a lot and it's become very uh, common for us. And in fact, it's, it's common in every language. The word Amin is really how you pronounce it. Amin, it, is, uh, it means trustworthy. It means something that is true. It means I agree with that. And in fact, it's, a, it's transliterated directly from the Hebrew into the Greek of the Old Testament, or in the New Testament, excuse me, and also into Latin, into English, and many other languages. It's a universal word. Every language, everyone knows what amen means. It means we agree with what you're saying. That's why in some church services you might hear somebody say amen after a statement. And so this would actually be a slap in the face to this church by Jesus saying the amen because he is not false. They, as a result of, of, of their lukewarmness and, and the condition of the church, they were, they were false. They weren't actually walking in truth. And Jesus is now saying, thus says the Amen. Thus says the one who is true, the one who is trustworthy. And so he also says the faithful and true witness. You know, when you know, Jesus is the perfect man, he's the Son of God. He, he, he's the only uncreated one. He's never been created He's never been created. He always has existed with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. But Jesus is faithful. And that means that He is faithful in, 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 in every area, in every area of His life, in everything that He does. He's worthy of our trust. He can be relied upon. You remember in the very first chapter of Revelation, in verse 5, what did it say about Jesus Christ? It said that He was the faithful witness the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. And so, Jesus Christ is, He is faithful in every sense of the word. In fact, one of my favorite verses in all of the Bible, and I hope it's one of yours too, is John 14, verse 6. It's one that we know very well, where Jesus said to His disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes unto the Father except through me, Jesus said. And so that's important. He is the only way. He is the only truth. 
He is the only life, and He's also the faithful, and He's also the true witness. The word witness here is where we get our word martyr from, because the, the word in the Greek is martis, and it literally means a witness, uh, one who is a spectator of anything. Um, and certainly, Jesus, who is eternal and dwells in, in eternity and outside of time, He is able to be a spectator on all things. He can look, He already knows, He's already seen it all as if it has already been completed. And yet we each have a free will in the midst of our lives. But he has the unfair advantage. I'm glad he has that advantage. But he has the advantage of seeing outside of time. So he doesn't make us do anything. He only gives us the opportunities. And then we respond. But he knows how we're going to respond. But we have the ability to make those choices. He doesn't overrule us in that way, which I think is wonderful. And it's necessary. That's a heavy doctrinal thought to, to grasp. And the church has been torn uh, so much over this about uh, free will and, and, and God's sovereignty. But the truth of the matter is it's both. God is sovereign, but he's got an advantage that we can't even completely wrap our heads around because he lives outside of eternity. Or he lives in eternity, excuse me. And he also, Jesus has proved the strength and the genuineness uh, of who he is by undergoing a violent death. And that's exactly what Jesus did too. And that's what this word means. He's the faithful and true witness, a witness, somebody who has um, gone to the end, even to the end of their life, and by their testimony and, and the genuineness of their faith, they prove it by even giving their life if necessary. And so notice at the end of verse 14, it says the beginning of the creation of God. And when you think of that, and when you read that, you may be thinking to yourself, well, Jesus then did have a beginning. Well, that's not really what it means there. It does not mean that Jesus was created. Rather, it does mean that he was in the beginning at the creation. In fact, um, I would encourage you in your Bible, uh, under that section, under that area, the beginning of the creation of God, I would encourage you to write down a couple passages. The first one is John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. And Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. Colossians chapter 1, 15 through 17. And let me read them to you because... If you take this verse by itself and you don't understand the context of it, what it means in the original, it's going to um, give you a warped sense of what it is. But look what it says in John chapter 1, and this is something we all know. In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning, in the beginning of when time began, we know that Jesus always lived even outside of time before He was incarnate in the Virgin Mary, right? By the Virgin Mary. But He always lived outside of time. He, he was alive before then. But He tabernacled Himself in human flesh to come and to, uh, pay the price for the sin of man, right? That's what He did. Notice what it says in John 1. It says, In the beginning was the Word. The Word is Jesus Christ, the Logos. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, meaning our beginning, the beginning of the creation, the beginning of when God says, the beginning when we read in Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That's the beginning that we're talking about here. He was in the beginning, this Logos, this Jesus, and all things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. So that means that this Jesus Christ he was there in the beginning. In fact, he was instrumental in creating it. 
In Colossians 1, verse 15, where I had you write down, it says, Jesus, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created that were in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and in Him all things consist. So it's very clear to me that before you can make a, uh, create something, you have to exist beforehand. So this all makes sense, and doctrinally throughout the Bible, that is obviously what it says. So that's really what this verse means. Notice when Jesus goes on here and speaking to this church, He says, I know your works. And the idea is, I know your toil, I know your labor, I know the things that you do, and the Lord knows what you do, and the, and the things that you have done, the sacrifices that you have made, the, the service that you provide here at the church, and even services that you, service to Him that you do outside of the church, outside of the building, I should say. The Lord knows all these things. And He says to this church, He says, I know your works, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were hot or cold. See, being cold is someone who is spiritually indifferent. They're kind of uh, uh, apathetic. They, they live in unbelief. They're, they can even be hostile towards the gospel. It could be someone who is unsaved or not born again, as we would say. But being hot is just the opposite, isn't it? Being hot speaks of somebody who is born again, who is literally boiling over with spiritual fervency. That There's someone who loves the Lord. They love the Word of God. They love to talk about the Lord, and they're pursuing the Lord, and they want to get that message out, and that is someone who is hot. And when someone is spiritually cold and knows it, guess what? There is hope. And that's why Jesus said, I wish you were cold or hot, because if you're cold, He can do something with it, right? If a person is cold and they know they're lost and they don't have any salvation and they haven't given their heart to Christ, you can work with somebody like that. But someone who is straddling the fence, who is neither cold nor hot, but is somewhere in the middle, these are the hardest people to minister to. And perhaps you've been in churches, and even in our church, there's been a handful of people that over time I've been able to talk to, and you never know really where they're at, because they say one thing, but their life and, and their, their witness is completely different. And you, you just scratch your head, and you're wondering, what is going on here? And so... These are things that we really need to examine. That's why we need to examine our own hearts in this letter. And believe me, folks, this is not an easy letter, but it's something that we have to look at. So Jesus said in verse 16, So then, because, of you, because you are lukewarm, and the idea of lukewarm is kliaros, uh, uh, which means a tepid, um, where you fluctuate and you're just kind of all over the place. He says, Because you are that way and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. The King James Version says spew. <laughs> the New King James says vomit. And the idea is just that very thing. is just the Lord. It, it is so displeasing to the Lord to have someone who calls Him by name, but yet their lives are completely, you know, there's just no evidence of it at all. And, and Jesus said, I will just vomit you out of my mouth. And these are very hard words from the Lord. Very hard words from the Lord. But being lukewarm, it speaks of someone who's half in, they're half out. They got one foot in the world and they got one foot in the kingdom. It's being in the middle of the road, being neutral. And in our Christian walk, there is no room for this kind of thing. I would encourage you to make your, your yes, yes, and your no, no. If you are a Christian, then get in 
the game. And if you are not a Christian, just be honest about it and say, Lord, I, I've been playing a game, but there's no fervency in my heart. I've got no desire for you, Lord. I've got no desire to, work, to read the Word of God, and I certainly don't have any desire to talk to people about you. And if that is the truth, we have to ask the hard question. You know, Lord, am I even one of yours? Am I even one of yours? My heart is just not there, Lord. And the Lord's like, I can deal with that. You know, if you're honest with the Lord, you know, He, he already knows. We don't need to uh, have some kind of pretense and, and, and fake our way into this thing. People do that all the time. There's a lot of actors in churches these days. But God is looking for the real genuine article. And there's no reason why we all can't be the genuine article because it's simply a, a confession away and a surrender away. And it's that simple. But again, our pride, if we're not careful, it gets in the way. And we're just like, no, I'm going to do my own thing, but I'm still going to have my foot in the church, but I'm going to have my foot in the world. And believe me, the Lord knows that you have need of things. He knows that you need to make money, and He knows you need to provide for your family. None of those things are, are foreign to Him. But you can still be a sold-out you know, believer in Christ and still be working all of these different things because guess what? Now he's got an ambassador at this job. He's got somebody who loves him at this job because guess what? All those people at those different jobs, all those people there are hopeless. Many of them are. They're on their second and third marriage. One guy is drinking himself to death. Another one is smoking pot on the side and he doesn't want his wife to know. And their kids are running amok and everything is a mess and they're all in debt. They're all broke. They're all despondent. They're not talking to each other. They're on their phones all the time whenever they are around each other. And these are the things Jesus says, Let your yes be yes and your no, no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. Did you hear that? Make your yes, yes, and your no, no. If you are a Christian, then be a Christian. If you are not, then, then, then ask the Lord. Ask the Lord to, to give you that, that, that new birth. And believe me, if anybody says, Lord, I ask for you to, to, to forgive me of my sins, and Lord, I want to be one of yours. I made that commitment when I was 24 years old, and I'll never forget it. <laughs> it was the greatest moment of my life. The Lord will never turn you away if you approach Him in honesty. But if you're going to play games with Him, then you're like this lukewarm person who's kind of playing games and still trying to work it out in church, and you're, you're doing both of these things. It just doesn't cut it. It doesn't cut it. A lukewarm person is, as one author explained, someone who has enough religion to get him to church, yet not enough grace to change his life. And that is true. That is true. It's so important because lukewarmness... Again, it speaks of indecision. It speaks of being double-minded. It means I'm, I'm thinking I'd like to be this other thing, but I'm, I'm really this. And I'm caught between two opinions, and I'm just going to kind of straddle the fence. In Psalm 119, verse 113, the psalmist says, and I believe it was David who said this, he says, I hate the double-minded, meaning somebody who is divided in heart or mind. And see, that's what a lukewarm person is. They're double-minded. The Lord's half-brother, James, in his epistle that we have written for us, he says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable 
in all of his ways. A double-minded person is someone who is literally two-spirited. There's two spirits going on, <laughs> and they, they vacillate on everything. They, they waver like a, like a wave tossed in a sea, and it's no way to live. Do you really want to live between two masters? Jesus said, you cannot serve two masters, for you'll hate the one or you'll love the other. And so to be right in the middle is actually detestable to the Lord. So make your decision today. And that's a hard thing to say, but you know what? I need to hear that, and I know you need to hear that as well. We cannot compartmentalize our life and say, this is my life at, at work, this is my life at church, this is my life when I like to play golf and hang out with my friends. No, as a Christian, you are a Christian across, you're a Christian, period. Across all the spectrums, no matter what you do, you're a Christian. Your life should exemplify the very life of Christ. It doesn't mean you're perfect, okay? It doesn't mean you're perfect, but it does mean that you, you, you're not sinless, but you should sin less as you go on, you know? You, you should be putting away those things, turning from things that you know that aren't right, and you know they're not right, and yet you continue to do them. And the great conundrum is, why? Why do I continue if I call myself a Christian? Why am I keep dabbling in things that I shouldn't be dabbling in? Make your calling and election sure and make it today. Don't waste your life. And, don't, and you know what? When you do make that decision, your life becomes purposeful. It becomes direction. You know, the Lord gives you great direction. But a person who is uh, lukewarm is, again, like a wave uh, tossed out on the sea. And it's just wherever the wind blows is where this person goes. And that's no way to live. We can't compartmentalize our life and maybe you know maybe this is not the way you feel but there are some who do you know some people view their relationship with Jesus Christ and going to church even as non-essential business but this is more essential than anything in the world you know going to the gym going to work going to class doesn't affect your eternity but having a relationship with Christ does affect your eternity and also also your fruitfulness and your enjoyment even in this life being a christian is one of the most joyful things in the world and yet sometimes we can walk around like sourpusses like we've been sucking on lemons and our whole face is caving in and we look down upon people and we think that you know we can walk around with that self-righteous attitude and that that happens you see churches like that and unfortunately you see some pastors even propagating that thing you know, we're the only church that's holy. We're the only right church. Hey, listen, there's only one church, and that's the church of Jesus Christ, regardless of, of who you are and what you do. But it's interesting, you know, that um, just to bring some uh, current events into this whole thing, liquor stores, abortion clinics, those things are essential business in our country. Isn't that amazing? Some legislatures, some state legislators uh, hold that as essential business, but not churches. And I think they really need to reevaluate that position. Uh, they've got it all wrong. The, the whole world is upside down. The whole world is a mess. It's upside down. And I think our president recently, this last Friday, had something to say about that. We just got to find out if he's really got the, um, the authority to do that. Uh, otherwise, we'd be, we might be starting a little sooner. But again, uh, more than just the law, we have to look at what is right for people. And so that's the thing we got to be careful of. We got to let this play out a little bit longer. So hang in there, folks. Hang in there. But church is essential. And your relationship with Christ is even more essential because that is the main thing. 
You know, it almost seems, it's like a paradox when we looked at the church of Sardis a couple weeks ago. It was called the dead church. And now we're looking at this lukewarm church. You know, it just ought not to be. Something that is lukewarm is neither hot nor cold, and it, it's just unsatisfying. It's unsatisfying. Have you ever had a, a cup of coffee, and you go to, someone gives you a cup of coffee, and you grab it by the hand, and you bring it up to your mouth, and right before it hits your mouth, you realize there's something not right. You don't feel the steam coming up on your face. You can feel the warmth in the glass or the lack thereof, and you're like, and then you take a sip, and it confirms that the coffee's been sitting out for a half hour, and it's cold, and there's nothing more detestable than hot coffee. I like coffee, and so I'm always constantly warming up my coffee. I like it hot. I don't like it cold. If I want it cold, then I make it cold on a hot day, but usually I don't do that. I like it hot, and most of you agree with me. Amen? However, when you pull that up to your mouth and you take a sip and it's cold, it's, it's detestable, it's, especially when you're looking forward to it. And so the church can be a lot like that. I'm not saying that this particular fellowship, our fellowship is like that. I think there's remnants of it in our hearts that we have to examine today. And certainly, globally, the church is heading in that direction. We see it, the, the, the visible church, they're, they're going in that direction. They're, they're more interested in money. They're more interested in their building projects. They're more interested in doing things rather than doing what God wants us to do, and that is to worship Him first and foremost and to get to know Him, to have fellowship with Him. That's the greatest thing. And then to fellowship and, and encourage others. That is it. That's the main thing. Everything else falls into place after that. So a church that is cold is one where there's no evangelism, there's no desire to walk in purity, there's no desire to gather to fellowship, no desire to read the Word of God. And so these things are, are critical for us. One of the interesting things about this, this city of Laodicea was their water supply. They didn't have an adequate water supply. So what they would do is they would have two different aqueducts coming from two different cities. One was from Colossae, who was a, a church that Paul had ministered to and written the letter to. And that was about six or seven miles away. And the other one was Hierapolis, and this area was known for its hot springs. And so there were these underground aqueducts that would bring these water sources into Laodicea. But the problem is, by the time that cold water came from Colossae, and by the time the hot springs from the Hierapolis got to uh, Laodicea, by that time, through traveling underground through these aqueducts, the water was what by the time it got there? The cold water was no longer cold. The hot water was no longer hot. And so it became uh, just a lukewarm thing. And, and Jesus likens the, the physical idea of this whole thing with the church spiritually as well. You know, there are churches today that are lukewarm and, and some churches that are just downright evil. You know, there are churches in the area, in, in this state, that embrace homosexuality. They embrace fornication and they embrace abortion. There are pastors of churches that, have, that are homosexual and are actually married to members of the same sex and they're teaching their congregations and the congregations are okay with it. <laughs> this is insanity. It's sin. It should not be. You know? and, and so these things are horrible and the things that are happening. And, and, and so we see this spirit of Laodicea uh, all over um, the place and it's really an unfortunate thing. It's unfortunate. 
you know, we would invite anybody who is um, dealing with any issue, right? I mean, a, a church should be open to anyone who is a homosexual or someone who is involved in fornication, a, 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 two young, a, man and a, a young man and a young girl. Even if they're involved in that, they're welcome to come in. But our hope is that they will come and change and not come in and stay the same. If, if, if they're embraced by the church and their activities that they're doing, there's something wrong. We ought to love them, but tell them the truth, right? Because they need to turn from their sin, right? Because the Bible says that it's sin. So we can no longer coddle these things. We have to make a stand. We can love the people, but just like in our own lives, we, we hate our own sin, don't we? Do you hate your own sin? I hate my own sin. I hate that part of me. And, and anytime that I'm, I'm thinking or, or about to do something, you know, it, it's just like, Lord, help, you know, and thank God for his Holy Spirit. But we do love people and the Lord loves people. He doesn't have a problem with somebody who is a homosexual coming into the church as long as that person's coming with a broken heart or at least with a heart that's open to hear the truth. <laughs> you know, and that's the difference. That's the difference. There are some churches that wouldn't allow anybody like that. But guess what? The church is not supposed to be full of saints. Hopefully the church is filled with sinners who need Christ because that is who Jesus died to save, to set free. And I was one of those sinners, and I still am a sinner, but saved by grace, uh, just like you, hopefully. So praise the Lord for that. You know, John Walvoord, who was a, a great uh, Bible teacher, a great biblical theologian, he said there's no... There is no one farther from the truth in Christ than the one who makes an idle profession without real faith. He says, How many church members are far from God, yet by their membership in a professing church have been lulled to sleep into a false security? No one has been harder to reach for Christ than the religionist. Far easier to win the harlots and the publicans than to win the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And so that is a really tough word, but it's true. It's hard to reach somebody who thinks that they're okay, that they're in this lukewarm place. So why would Jesus vomit this church out? He gives the reason in verse 17. He says, Because you say, I am rich, and I have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. And he, and he says, and do, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. You know, when he mentions these words like poor and blind and naked, he's speaking spiritually. Certainly, they were very rich physically. Certainly, they, they claimed to have their eyes wide open, and so they would claim that they, they can see, but yet Jesus says they were blind, and they were clothed because this church, this city, was known for its, uh, its clothing and its uh, tapestries and those things and, and black wool, which they uh, integrated in some of their fancy clothing. So they were very much, they were into style. And yet Jesus says, for all of that, yet you are naked. Yet you are naked. This church was known for its affluence, its prosperity, for its medicine, its manufacturing, and certainly its banking. It formed a tri-city relationship along with Hierapolis and Colossae. And um, around 60 A.D., it said that there was a, a great earthquake in that area, and it just leveled the city of Laodicea. And instead of relying upon the Romans to come and build the city up again, they were so wealthy and they were so proud in their vast resources and their, their banking prowess <laughs> that they decided, we don't need any help. We'll do it ourselves. And they did. And they, they built it up themselves. And they were known for their 
uh, making these glossy black wool that would uh, be woven into their garments that they would sell. And so when the Lord mentions to them that they are naked, this again would be like a slap in the face to them. Because they had all this stuff going that they thought was really great in the physical. And the Lord's saying, you know what, you, you are rich, but you're poor spiritually. You, you, you don't even know where you're at. You're all over the map. You, you say that you can see, but yet you are blind. And you're so rich in your clothing and all the things that you have, and yet you are naked. There is nothing about you uh, that is worth anything. And that's a very hard thing. And this is the modern church much of the modern church, not every member of the church, and certainly not every fellowship. But this thing is this idea that we are rich and in need of nothing is pervasive across our land, across the world for that matter, in the time that we live in. But the answer to the Lord to us would be the same. He says, do you not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked? See, Jesus is not a respecter of persons. He's not partial to anyone or any group. He will tell it like it is. He is truthful, right? We, we established that from the very beginning. He is truthful. He is truthful. Churches today are more concerned about making money and funding their buildings and their programs. They're more concerned about marketing techniques and, 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 and getting demographics for the area to find out how they can support, you know, how they can get more members in their church by maybe having a baseball diamond behind the church and, and doing all these other things. So then the church becomes rather a servant of people rather than a servant of God and giving the people what they really need. They don't need more sports. They don't need more activities. Although those things are good in and of themselves, there's nothing wrong with those things. But when that's what's drawing people in and there's no, there's no teaching of the Word, what is the point of even getting together? You might as well go to your public school. Go to Penfield High School. They got all of that stuff. And they've got the highest quality stuff because our taxes are so high. Trust me, in Penfield they are. And many of you from Penfield know what I'm saying. And Fortune 500 ideas from board members slipping into the church, slipping in. Instead of doing the right thing, they, 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 they get out these things. What can we do to attract people? What, what can we do to, to hold their membership? Maybe what we'll do is we'll... We'll, we'll, we'll force them to, you know, give us their W-2, and we'll find out how much they're, how much money they're making, and then we'll make them tithe. This is what you should do if you're being faithful to the Lord. Are you kidding me? When is worship? Is that really worship? No, that sounds like a fleecing. <laughs> but when somebody is truly worshiping, they give of their own heart, of their own volition. They don't give because somebody tells them they've got to give. That's a bunch of nonsense. And the Lord doesn't want anything to do with that. And there are a lot of, and again, I don't have anything wrong against mega churches, but if a mega church is operating in any of those schemes and things that they're doing, they're in sin and they need to repent. And that is the truth. Notice in Jesus, in verse 18 here, he says to them, As a result of all this, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich. Notice gold refined in the fire. Gold speaks of what is valuable, at least on the earth. It's probably one of the most precious metals, arguably, on the earth. That's why we have the gold standard, or at least we think we do. Uh, every, every money that we have is supposed to be backed up in the treasury with gold. <laughs> right? And so, uh, so we, you know, gold is, is uh, very valuable. And yet metalsmiths, and, and you've heard me say this before, you've heard it said before, but notice what Jesus says. I counsel to you, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire. Gold refined in the fire. When gold is refined, a metalsmith, as you know, heats it up 
and he takes off the dross off the top. All those impurities and the gold bubble to the top and he skims them off the top. Then he heats it up again and he does the same thing. And he keeps doing it until he can see his reflection in that molten gold. And then he knows it's pure. And Jesus is saying, you church, this church at Laodicea, he says, you're not pure. You're anything but pure. In fact, I can't even see my reflection in you at all. I don't even think I'm actually in you at all. There's a lot of question marks here. And notice, he goes, I counsel you to to buy gold from me, refined in the fire, that you may be rich. And again, this would be another slap in the face to them because they were boasting that they were rich. They were great bankers. They were great commercial men. They had all these things going. And Jesus says that you may be rich. You say that you're rich. In the physical, you may think you may be rich, but everything else, you're poor. You are poor. And this is in stark contrast with those of the church at Smyrna. Remember what Jesus spoke to them. He says, I know your works. This is in Revelation 2, verse 9. I know your works. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. This was the exact opposite from Laodicea. The church of Smyrna was poor. They didn't have anything, but yet God says they were rich in faith toward him. They were small in number, but they had a big God. You know, when you look at this church, they had everything. Everything was going for them, but they had nothing. Isn't that a funny paradox? It seems like that in life that is true. Usually those who are the most gifted, I think it's just God's way of leveling the playing field sometimes. You know, because everybody sees everything through their own eyes and they see things wrongly. They, They assume that... Uh, because you're wealthy and rich that you're happy and that you got everything together. And I've known people who are uh, Christians who, who love the Lord that are wealthy. And because their heart is not on the money, you know, they got it honestly and they did well and they worked hard and God blessed them. And they're, they're the biggest givers. Uh, and, and then there's other people who are wealthy and they don't know the Lord and they're the most unhappy people. Unfortunately, they're unhappy. You know, they're unfulfilled. They, 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 they try to find their solace in the bottom of a, of a, of a, of a glass. They try to find their comfort in um, promiscuous relationships. They try to find their fulfillment in anything because their money doesn't fulfill, because the void in their heart is still open, it's wide open, and it's only a hole that Christ can fill. It's the only one. And notice he goes on and he says, I counsel of you to buy gold refined in the fire that you may, may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed. And white garments speaks of the righteous acts of the saints. That's what it says in Revelation 19 verse 8, that the, the fine linen that Jesus is going to array the church in is the righteous acts of the saints. And, and it's his righteousness first and foremost. And this would be a rebuke to them as well because, again, they were known for their garments. They were known for their black wool. It was a really big deal for them. And they would use this. But now he's saying that they're black and they're defiled in in everything that they're doing. There's no white garment here. And that's why he mentions this, uh, I will give you white garments, you know, if you ask, that you may be rich and have white garments because you don't have white garments. And he says, and anoint your eyes. He goes, that, he, let me back up. He says, uh, that you may be clothed you know, with these white garments and that the shame, at the end of verse 18 here, that the shame of your nakedness be not revealed and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. They, again, they were famous for their schools of medicine and they had this really wonderful compound that they could put in eyes. Uh, and a lot of people back at that time had different um, 
eye diseases and eye infections and I wish I had some today. I'd put some in my in Kathy's eye. <laughs> uh, but they had this salve that was world-renowned that they would put in people's eyes and it would help them. And Jesus is saying, I need to do that to you. You're the one making the product and yet you're the one who needs it the most because you're blind. You can't see. And, um, you know, it's an amazing thing. You know, Jesus spoke often of the Pharisees and, and told them, and these were the religious leaders of the day, and they were supposed to be the ones who were the, um, the leaders and to, to know the Word of God and to know how to act and, and to act rightly, to be examples. And yet they were blind. And Jesus said, you're like the blind leading the blind. And, 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 and he, would, um, he would upbraid them for this. Verse 19 he says, as many as I love, I rebuke and I chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. You know, Jesus loves. As many as he loves, he rebukes and chastens. The idea of rebuke is just to bring conviction, to expose, to bring to the light, to call to account, to demand an expl explanation. That's what this idea of rebuke is. You know, in Proverbs chapter 9, Solomon said this. He said, do not correct a scoffer, lest he hate you. But rebuke a wise man, and he will love you. And, and that is so true. You know, if you rebuke a scoffer, they're going to scoff at you. But if you rebuke at a man who is wise, he's going to listen because he realizes that he's not all that. <laughs> he realizes that there's still a lot of growth in his own character, and a, a wise man will take a rebuke. They will take a rebuke. How about you? Are you able to be rebuked? Are you able to be corrected? How do you feel when you're corrected? Unfortunately, in the days that we live in, so many people are offended very easily at any thought of them having to need correction at all. And it's an unfortunate thing. I, I love correction. I, I really do. I, I love to be corrected because I'm growing. And I, I'm, every single day, I'm growing. I'm growing in my knowledge of the Lord. I'm growing in my relationship with Him. I'm growing even in this ministry, and, and I love growing. I really do. I love learning. And when, when you get to the point where you're no longer desiring to grow and you don't want to learn, you don't want to be corrected, believe me, that is a sad day because that's the day that you begin to die. And, you just, and, and it just brings you into, into despondency, and your life is just no longer fruitful. There's no joy anymore, is there? But you know what? When, you're, when you enjoy learning, and I love being around guys who know a lot of stuff. You know, I was just here with Richard Williams and Al Moldenhauer the other day as they were working on the teen room. And Richard's in there, and he's doing these you know, things, and, and I'm watching him, and I'm just like, how did you do that? Or why did you do that? You know, why do you have this string coming out of the wall? You know, and he was explaining it, and I'm just like, I'm like wow. You know, I learned something, and, and, I, and, and that's wonderful to learn, isn't it? I love learning, and it's a good thing to learn. But notice the Lord says, not only do I rebuke, but I also chasten. Remember, chastening is, is the idea of instruction. It's not just God bringing down the hammer on you and busting you for something, okay? It's the idea of instructing you so that you learn, you know, you learn. In Proverbs chapter 22, it says, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. You know, if you train up a child, that's all they know. And it's very hard to depart from them uh, as they go because they have this foundation. But if a child has no foundation, he's going to be, he or she's going to be all over the map. But when we are brought up with a foundation 
and our path is narrow, which is a good thing. As we become aware of things, we realize that this stuff is slippery business over here, but if I stay on the narrow path with the Lord, my life is going to be fruitful. Be fruitful. I love also what it says in Proverbs chapter 3. It says, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just as a father, the son in whom he delights. Happy is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. For her proceeds are better than the profits of silver and her gain than fine gold. Do you hear that? That chastening is better than the profits of fine gold and the profits of silver. And that's just exactly what the Lord is talking about. He chastens those whom He loves because He loves us. You know, if, if you really love your son or your daughter, you're not going to say, oh, it's fine, go ahead. Go out into the, in the middle of the street while you got your big wheel and, and you know, we've got a busy road in front of our house, but it's okay, just have fun, see you at noon, around lunchtime. You know, if we say that to our kids, we really don't love them. But any sensible parent is going to say, no, I don't want you anywhere near the end of the driveway because cars are zooming in. They're not looking at all at you. That's what love does. Love sets boundaries and love delights in boundaries. Are you willing to be confined for your own good? I didn't like it when I was younger, but now I see the, 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 the importance of being confined by certain things. And that's there to protect me. It's there to protect me. And notice, he says, Therefore, as a result of this, be zealous. And, and it sounds just exactly what it is. Be heated. Be excited in a good sense. Be zealous in the pursuit of good. You know, pursue and to strive after. Be, be busy about the Lord's business. And also to repent. It just means to turn and think differently. To literally turn 180 degrees. Think differently. To think differently. And... Um, and some people, you know, they have to, including myself, I've gone through many lessons over and over again, and I need to go through them again because I'm not repenting or I haven't repented, and I have to go through the same lesson over and over again. And, you know, God is patient, you know. Believe it or not, when I was in kindergarten, they actually held me back. And if my mother's watching uh, this morning, she'll probably laugh at this. But And she remembers because uh, <laughs> when I was in kindergarten, uh, I would run out the door as soon as they, as soon as class started uh, there in Flint, Michigan. I would go into the class, and as soon as the teacher turned her back, I would bolt out the door. And she didn't even know I was missing for a while. And finally, she called my mother, and I was playing in a playground across the street from our house. So my mother was at work, and um, they had no idea that I was missing for quite a while. And so they actually had to hold me back another year because I was too immature for kindergarten. So I was too immature for kindergarten. Can you believe that? So they actually held me back. I had to go through it again because of my immaturity. So that's kind of fun to think about. But there are consequences, right? And God is patient. And, and, and if we have to go through the same lesson over and over again, believe me, He's in it. Uh, we don't like it, but He is very, very patient. And there is always a consequence for a lack of repentance. And a lack of repentance is disobedience. It is disobedience. And the Lord loves us enough to tell us the truth. Notice in verse 20, Jesus says to this church, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and dine with him and he with me. 
You know, if we were to compare this church with what we just read last week in the church of Philadelphia, remember what the, what the Lord did for the church in Philadelphia. He said, see, and this is Revelation 3 verse uh, 8. He says, see, I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it. But yet when he comes to Laodicea, he has to knock on the door. And the idea is that he's knocking for admittance. But they are not letting him in. They don't even know him. And even if they do know him, they, they lack such spiritual fervency and, and they're, they're so lackadaisical and they're so uh, unconcerned that they don't really care that they don't even hear the door knocking. And even if they do, they don't want to get up and open the door. Jesus in Luke's Gospel, this is Luke chapter 12, verse 34 Jesus speaking to his disciples, he said, Let your waist be girded and your lamps burning, and you yourselves be like men who wait for their master when he will return from the wedding, that when he comes and knocks, they may open to him immediately. And any servant, as they would wait for their master, and as the master would come home and the master would knock on the door, the servants would immediately open the door for their master you know, and Jesus would go on later on in that same chapter in Luke 12 and verse 42, and he said, Who then is that faithful and wise steward whom his master will make ruler over all of his house to give him their portion of food in due season? And, um, and Jesus goes on, he says, Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say that, you will, that he will make him ruler over all that he has. But if that servant says in his heart, My master is delaying his coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and to be drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him, at an hour when he is not aware, and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. And that servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. But he who did not know, yet committed things deserving of stripes, shall be beaten with few stripes. You notice the grace in that? For everyone to whom much is given, for him much will be required. And to whom much has been committed, to him they will ask the more. And see, this is one thing that the church of Laodicea, was not, that they didn't have any works. You know, they, they weren't being a good steward over things. And Jesus had to come and knock on the door. He should never have to knock on the door of any church. The church door should be wide open for him more than anything else to do what he pleases, to do what he wants. And so it's an unfortunate thing. And even today, some churches are like that. You know, are you open to the Lord? Are you open to what he wants to do in your life? It's important to let him have access to all of you, to all of you. So Jesus says again in verse 20, I stand at the door knock, and if anyone hears my voice, hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in with him and dine with him and he with me. Notice in this letter that Jesus is not just speaking to the entire church as a, as a whole, but to individuals within the church and to anyone for that matter, because he uses words like, if anyone hears my voice, are you one of those anyone's? Are you listening to the voice of the Lord? Do you know his voice? Jesus in John chapter 10, what did he say? He said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. I love the fact that our salvation is secure because of the one who gives it to us. You know, does the Lord have your ear? Does he have your ear? 
If the Lord doesn't have your ear, then what are you giving your ear to? What are you giving your attention, your thoughts? Are you giving it to Fox News? Are you giving it to CNN? Are you giving it to Hannity, to Rush Limbaugh, to MSNBC, the New York Times? You name it. It doesn't matter what end of the spectrum you're talking about. Where are you giving your ear? Because if your ear is focused on those things predominantly, you are going to be in a different spot than where the Lord would have you to be. It's more important to listen to Him. Listen to Him. For any news that you listen to, read the Bible twice as much and you'll be in a much better spot because it is important how you hear. Jesus said even in Luke chapter 8, he says to his disciples after speaking a parable to them, he says, therefore, take heed how you hear. There's a big difference there. How you hear. Not what you're hearing, but how you hear it. What lens are you hearing through? Are you hearing it through the worldview of the liberal media and, and, and those who are on the far left? And, and those who are bent on a one-world uh, government and a, a, a one-world order, a new world order, are you listening to that or are you listening to the Lord? It's important. And it's a funny thing because we know that faith comes by hearing and hearing the Word of God. And that 18 inches from your ear to your heart, some people take a lifetime for that knowledge, that understanding to get from here down to here. Sometimes a lifetime. May it not be true of us. I want what comes into my ears from the Word of God to go directly and deposit in my heart. And that's what I would desire. Maybe you desire the same thing. I hope you do. Because it is healthy for us. It is good for us to do that. To listen to the Lord's voice and to open the door. In Psalm 95, uh, the, the writer of Psalm says, Today, if you will hear His voice... Do not harden your heart as in the day, as in the rebellion, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they saw my works. And then obviously the psalmist is speaking about the rebellion of the children of Israel while they were in the desert after they had come out of Egypt and how they tested the Lord. And, and David is saying the same thing here in Psalm 95. Don't harden your heart as in the rebellion, when they were rebellious. Don't be anything like them. Get your heart soft before the Lord and say, Lord, soften my heart with oil. Isn't that one of the songs we'd sing? Soften my heart with oil. Open my eyes to see. Give me uh, understanding. Open my heart to believe. And at the end of verse 20 here, he says, then, then I will come into him and dine with him. And having a meal in that day, in this culture, even still in the Middle East and the Near East, Whenever you would share a meal with somebody, it was an intimate thing. It wasn't like just everybody gathering around the table like it can be. But, you know, uh, gatherings around food uh, often in, in bigger families, they're, they're really wonderful. And I would encourage you to do that because it is such an, it, there's such a wonderful intimacy. And it's something that we're getting farther away from. Everybody gathering around the table the whole family gathering around the table and sitting there for more than just scoffing down the food and going your separate ways, but talking to each other, seeing how each other's doing. And that's what it was. Uh, that's the kind of culture that they were living in at this time. And it's still the same culture over there today. Very hospitable. And when you share a meal with somebody, you're, you're, it's, a, it's a very intimate thing. And it was a really sweet thing. And so Jesus, notice, is inviting them, even in their decrepitness, even in their wretchedness, He's saying, I still love you. He's not angry. He's not like um, wanting to, to, you know, even though He would spew them out of His mouth, it doesn't mean that He's done with them. If He was done with them, He would just pass judgment on them. But He says, no, 
you're a mess, <laughs> but I still love you and I want you to come to me. And for any one of us listening, that's a good thing. If you need to come to him, come to him. Don't waste any time. Don't waste any more of your time in trying to find yourself and trying to get it right. If you try to fix yourself up before you come to Christ, you'll never come because you'll never fix yourself up good enough. Come to the Lord with all of your, all of your mess, all of your pimples, all of your ticks, <laughs> everything that you've got that's ugly and that you're ashamed of. You don't have to be ashamed to come to the Lord. You come to Him and He says, If you come to me, I will come and I'll dine with you and I'll make my abode with you. Isn't that what He says? Isn't that His heart? If you've heard of Jesus' heart being anything other than that, then you're probably going to a wrong church. <laughs> because if the church is not, if the pastor of any church is saying that God is done with you and He's angry with you, and if you don't give enough money, then we're going to, you know, boom, 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 and whatever it is, that's nonsense. It's nonsense. It's not about money. It's not about anything but your relationship with God, with Jesus Christ. And that is the, the foundation of it all. Out of that comes everything else. And it's wonderful and beautiful when it's unrestricted and, and, it's, and it's not held down and, and, and put a, a cover is not put on it. It's such a wonderful thing to be a child of God. And you know what? The world looks at us and they think we're just crazy. You know, and, and you know, everybody's different. Everybody has a different personality. And some people go a little over the top. And you know what? That's okay. <laughs> you know, I'd rather see somebody a little over the top in their excitement and their zeal than seeing somebody walk around like a sourpuss, like they've been um, nursing lemons. You know, it, it just doesn't make sense. We ought to be joyful. Where is our joy, church? We need our joy. We need to come back to the Lord. We need to come back to Him. So verse 21, it says, To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on his throne. And so how is it that we overcome? There are at least three ways that we can see in Scripture. The first one is by the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. The second one is by the word of our testimony. And the third is our faith in Jesus Christ. And you might want to write these verses down. There's just two of them, but it encompasses those three at the very least. This is how we overcome. The first one is in Revelation chapter 12 verse 11 and it says this revelation 12:11 and they overcame him and this is speaking of the saints in the tribulation period uh, overcoming the devil and, and satan the, those people those saints who survived and uh, the, the tribulation period um, who went into that that period who got saved somewhere in the middle there um, they they were overcomers it says and they overcame him uh, speaking of Satan, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. To the death. I love that. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 4 and 5, it says this. This is the other thing. This is another a method by which we overcome. He's, John says, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Our faith, your faith is more precious than gold. It's more precious than anything this world has to offer. Who is he who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Love that. Love that. 
Notice what he says too. Not, to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me in my throne, or on my throne. Um, Jesus in Matthew chapter 19, beginning in verse 28, uh, speaking to his disciples, he said this, He said, Assuredly, I say to you, that in the regeneration, the regeneration is speaking about the thousand-year reign of Christ, the, the millennial reign as we call it, the, the time, the period after the great tribulation period that's coming, that's coming yet future to the world, the time after that great tribulation period. Remember, the church is going to be removed in the rapture of the church before the great tribulation period, and then Jesus comes back with us to the earth in His second coming, and that begins the millennial reign of Christ for a thousand years. And there's a lot more to that story, actually not even to that story, but to that truth of what we know to be true in the Word of God than what we have time to go into today. But notice Jesus said, I tell you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of His glory, you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So the twelve apostles, and I don't believe that's Judas, but I believe it's probably the Apostle Paul. In fact, uh, one final verse, and then we'll finish here. Actually, two verses. The first one is in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 3. Paul, speaking to the Corinthians, he said this. He says, Do you not know that we shall judge angels? And obviously, Paul is speaking of, uh, and the, of angelic beings in the thousand-year reign of Christ, when we are resurrected in our new bodies that we will have. You can read 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. Read those passages because what I'm telling you is truth. And it may sound kind of crazy, but it's there. It's there for us. And you can read it for yourself. And notice finally what Jesus says in Revelation 20, verse 4. Uh, John, uh, speaking here, says, I saw thrones and they sat on them. And judgment was committed to them. And then I saw, uh, and, and, and he's speaking about these, uh, these thrones and those who sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. And he says, Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark on their foreheads or on their hands, and they lived and they reigned with Christ for what? A thousand years. There it is again. So Jesus is saying here to this church in this final verse, He says, To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. How practically is He going to do that? I don't know, and I don't even care. The fact that He's going to allow it is exciting, and that's all that really matters to me. So finally, He ends this letter, and we'll end here. He who has an ear. Do you have an ear this morning? I think we all do. We have two ears. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So even though this letter was written to this specific church in Laodicea, I believe Jesus was prophesying also of the, of the last church age, the last church of the age, of the church age, before He returns for us in the rapture. And I believe we are in those days, folks. I believe we are in those days. And I'm not alone. There are many pastors, many brothers in Christ who have studied the Word of God for years, old men who have been in it for a long time. They all concur. We live in this time right now, and we are close to the end. And the signs are all around us, and it's foolish for us not to wake up and listen. 
I would, I would encourage you, just as Jesus said, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear. The idea is hear with a sense of doing something. Don't just hear and let it go in one ear and out the other. You must do something with what we read today. You must do something. I must do something with what I just read. And I want it to take deep root into my heart. I want it to be rooting and, and, and blossoming and, and I can share it with others. And I need to tell them because God loves them. And I don't you love people? I mean, really, if you think about it, we're really no different. We all desire the same things. We all want the same things. We all want peace. We all want to be fed. We all want rest. We all want to be accepted. We want to be loved. These are the, the core essentials of being a human being. And God put it all there. And yet we, we try to find it in other areas, in other places, through different mediums, through different drugs and different experiences. And God is saying, everything that you need is in me. Isn't that what he said? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. Let the Lord touch your heart today. And I pray that if you're feeling the sting of this a little bit, that's probably a good thing. If this doesn't apply to you, praise the Lord. But I can tell you that it applies to me. As I read this, again, being the first partaker of what I'm sharing with you today, it was hitting me right between the eyes. And I recognize, Lord, I need you more than ever. I need your spirit to reside upon me. I know you're in me, but Lord, come upon me in, in, the, in, the, in the fire of your holiness. Not in some kind of weirdness that you see on television. True spirituality, true baptism of the Spirit of God is is wonderful. It's beautiful. There's peace. There's not somebody screaming at you. See, the, the world has it all backwards, and even some Christians have it backwards. There was no there was no more spiritual of a man than Jesus Christ, and you don't see him acting like an idiot. <laughs> like some people you see them doing. And, I, and I'm, yes, I did say idiot. And because some people can act like that. They, 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 get, they get weird and they just act like idiots. But God is not an idiot. And he was the most spirit-filled man. He was and is God in the flesh. And being the case, he was the most loving, the most approachable, the most gracious, the most compassionate, the most loving person that ever walked the earth. And what did he get as a result? They said, crucify him, because they were jealous of him. They hated him because he exposed the darkness in their heart. Let this expose the darkness of our heart, and hopefully he will expose any darkness within our own fellowship. And Lord, we pray this morning that you would touch our lives. God, individually, remove any of the things that we have read this morning. Lord, that have really, you've really put a finger on some things in my own heart, and I know that probably everybody else as well, Father. But Lord, help us not to walk away in condemnation. Lord, that's never your heart. But Lord, to walk away, certainly convicted, but convicted out of love because you know your love for us. And so, Lord, would you please love us and, and help us to understand that, Lord, you love us so much, Lord, that you uh, sometimes allow us to go through difficulty and you sometimes will tell us where we're going wrong because you love us. So very simply put, Lord, we ask you to do whatever you want to do in us individually and whatever you want to do in us corporately as a church. Would you please begin to unfold it even now? Set us on track, set us on course, 
put us on the narrow path and help us never to look to the side, to the left or to the right, but to be looking straight ahead at you and following you, Lord. So we ask you to do this and we know that you will. And Lord, we bend, we, we yield our will to you, God. And we ask that you would do this work in us. In Jesus' name, amen.